in a culture obsessed with cleanliness. I was thinking about it this week. We purify our water. We filter our air. We sanitize our hands. They sell little spray bottles at the grocery store that disinfect surfaces and fabrics. We're obsessed. Think about your diet, all the free things we're supposed to eat. Antibiotic-free chicken, hormone-free milk. I mean, we're obsessed with toxins, germs, dirt. We, we even have some people among us, you don't have to raise your hand, who are germaphobes. You live your life in an irrational fear of contracting germs. Hey, I want to tell you, you do your best to construct an atmosphere of cleanliness. But you're going to get dirty. You're going to get sick. You're going to eat something that doesn't sit right. And it doesn't matter how many times you do the dishes or do the laundry. There's always going to be another load to do. We're obsessed, though. That doesn't, that doesn't help us. It's just fact of life. And you look at Jesus' friends, enemies, fellow Jews. I mean, they were obsessed with cleanliness, too, only their cleanliness had something of a religious connotation. The Pharisees thought the cleaner you were, the holier you were. So they'd constructed an elaborate system to make sure they stayed pure, undefiled, spiritually sanitized. Only problem was, they didn't take their obsession far enough. Isn't that what Jesus has to tell them? This morning, I want to show you from this passage what it means to possess an unexpected holiness. A holiness that's not defined by what you do, but by who you are in your heart. You see, that's what God desires from us. He doesn't just want us to be squeaky clean on the outside. He wants to see in us a true holiness that comes from the heart. And so real quickly, I want to work our way through this passage, and I really just have two goals. And I've, I've discovered in the first week of this pilot program that we're going to have to think about our changes to our order of service, because I'm looking at the clock, and it's 12 minutes after when I normally get up here, and I got the same amount of sermon to preach. I know y'all got ribs you want to get grilling, and there's the U.S. Open you want to catch, and so I'm going to turn you loose as quick as I can. But these are the two things I got to get through first. I want you to know why holiness that's based only on your external behavior, on who you are on the outside, is so dangerous. you got to know why that's dangerous. And I want to help you know how you can come to possess true holiness, how you can be set free from the burden of unmet expectations, feeling like you never measure up to what God really wants from you. Okay, so let's do that. Let's get into it. And just by doing that, I want to say today we're kicking off our next round of, of sermons through Mark's gospel. And Mark 7 really represents a, a major turning point in the gospel. Over the past couple of chapters, we've seen instance after instance of Jesus performing incredible miracles. And everywhere he goes, his popularity is growing. And so there's always people to heal. There are always hungry people to feed. They're always scared disciples to calm down. And so we get to see him over and over and over, proving himself to be the Messiah, the one who comes bringing evidence of God's kingdom. 
But then we come to chapter 7, and that man demonstrating powerful signs and enjoying the popularity that came with it runs into a brick wall, which is the religious establishment's growing hostility against him and his disciples' stubbornness and hardness of heart. Nobody understands what he's doing. Because when Jesus came announcing the nearness of God's kingdom, he didn't come to fulfill their expectations. In fact, the kingdom he brought was totally unexpected. Everything about it flew in the face of what they thought was right and normal. And it begins with the religious orthodoxy around purity. So the Pharisees had constructed this elaborate system, clean categories of clean and unclean. And it seems like everywhere Jesus went, he ran afoul of those prevailing ideas. We've already seen a little bit of it in Mark's gospel. And back in chapter two, the Pharisees took issue with Jesus over the fact that he was eating with disreputable people, tax collectors and sinners. They said, why are you eating with these people? Then people come to him and say, hey, why aren't your disciples fasting? The Pharisees fast. John's disciples fast. Why not you? Why not your disciples? He starts breaking rules about what's normal for the Sabbath day. And in each instance, the Pharisees and scribes are there to call him out, to say, hey, you're doing what shouldn't be done. And by doing that, they showed their true colors. They were relying on a holiness that rested on who they were on the outside, on external factors. And it's dangerous. Here's why. Holiness that's based on external behavior breeds elitism. This is what we see first off in this passage when they come to him. It says the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they'd come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they've received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now we know from the way Mark uh, provides this little parenthetical phrase that he's writing to people like us. People totally unfamiliar with the rituals carried out by Jews. Most scholars believe Mark was writing to Christians living in Rome. And so several times as instances of Jewish ritual comes up, Mark provides some explanation. But the real thing I want you to see is not all the rules they followed, but where they came from. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they'd come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the seat of religious authority in ancient Israel. It's where the temple was, it's where the professional Bible teachers were, it's where the scribes were. And they had appointed themselves as protectors of Israel's holiness. They were the ones who published in the newspaper what people ought to be doing. They're the people who went around making sure they were following through. And when they heard about this guy Jesus preaching and leading people astray, they came to figure out what was going on. They're looking down their nose at him. Who do you think you are to violate the traditions of the elders? And this is pretty typical Pharisee behavior. We don't know where the Pharisees came from. They developed 
in the period between the ending of the Old Testament and God's people's return from exile and the beginning of the New Testament. But we do know that their name seems to come from a Hebrew word which means to separate. That's the name they chose for themselves. The people who are separate. The separatists. Apparently they had separated themselves for one specific reason. They thought most people didn't take their faith seriously enough. And so we're going to pull back and stand to the side and focus on God the way we think people ought to. And this separatist mindset, which began, I'm sure, out of good motives, like probably motives that you and I would have shared had we been alive then. I think we have the most in common. Uh, our, our faith today is the most in common with the Pharisees of the first century rather than the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots, although some of you guys probably would have fit in well with them. But the separatist, separatist impulse, which began you know, from a good place, over time devolves into this elitist attitude. And we see it across the New Testament. Jesus tells this story about a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. Do you remember how, the, how he prayed? He looked up into heaven, praying to God, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector over here, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on all that I get. The elitist mindset. There's another time when the Jewish leaders are debating among themselves about the significance of Jesus. And they're trying to decide who he really is and what maybe he's doing to the people. And, and they're thinking about those who are biblically informed and so able to interpret the scriptures. And then they think about this other group. This is how they describe him in John 7, 49. This crowd which does not know the law, is accursed. They saw themselves as the possessors of true spiritual knowledge, and they looked down on everybody else. They called them the people of the land, the common folk. They were less than, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew the Pharisees were on a whole other tier. And so while they sought to be separate and defined by obedience to God's law, what ended up happening is that they developed this attitude of elitism. And, and Pharisees today are no different. You know, take any measurement you want to, any standard of measurement, and give it moral or religious value, and you're bound to found, find Pharisees. You know, I was talking to somebody this week about the shame involved in a COVID diagnosis. You know, that you don't want anybody to know if you get COVID. Like you're a bad person if you catch a terribly contagious virus. You know, you're not a bad person. You just got sick. What about shame that comes with not recycling? You ever thought, have you ever met somebody like this? We all have recycling bins issued to us by the city. And I'll be honest, you know, we get Amazon boxes, Diet Coke cartons, you know, and all that stuff, cardboard aluminum cans, and it's, it's easy for me to recycle. Is it okay if I confess to you that I sometimes put a Diet Coke can in the trash bag? But you know, that some people would think I was subhuman for that. They're recycling Pharisees is what they are. You know, that's it. But then there are all sorts of issues that we do this. We take the thing that we think makes us a good person, and we start to immediately look down on others for it. 
And Christians are the worst. I mean, who, who is the untouchable for us? It's not the leper. You know, men, we hardly wash our hands at all. So we're not looking down on people who don't wash their hands. But, but who is it? I mean, in my experience, typically the untouchables for us Christians are people's, people whose pasts look differently than ours do. Or maybe whose sins and mistakes have been bigger, more costly, consequential. People who are struggling with stuff that we're not struggling through. And even though we know we're just like them, we're not like them. And that's the attitude of the Pharisee. It says, hey, what really matters before God is who we are on the outside. And if we don't stand up to the same level, then somehow we're better than others. And when you, when you base your holiness on external factors, elitism is bound to follow. But true holiness... And I'll just go ahead and give you this. I'll go ahead and think about this. True holiness that comes from the heart is totally different. It's not elitist. It's incredibly humble. Think about that. Think about David in his prayer. Against you and you only have I sinned. He says later in verse 17 of Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. A, a person who possesses a holiness that's not just based on what's on the outside, but what's on the inside knows deeply that there's nobody who's righteous. No, not one. That old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. They know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the Greek, all means all. That every last one of us, they know that God says, to this one I look, not to the person who has their life together, and who when you look at them on the outside, you say, man, that person is holy. This is what God says in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look, to him who's humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. That's the holiness Jesus is looking for, not a holiness based on, on externals, which so easily gives way to elitism, but a holiness that's humble, that knows, my pastor used to say this, that we're all one step away from stupid. And it's the truth. Pharisees couldn't have believed that. They thought they had it all figured out, and everybody ought to fall in line and look to them as the role models and leaders. That's not holiness. Because holiness like that starts with elitism and pretty quickly ends up as hypocrisy. That's where Jesus goes next when he quotes from Isaiah 29. He said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now Isaiah originally spoke those words in the 7th century B.C., and he got to be a prophet in probably one of the darkest days of Israel's history, the period leading up to their exile. I mean, it's hard to imagine the level of institutional and cultural religious rot that had set in. Because while the people were real good about showing up at the temple and offering the sacrifices and going through the motions, they had no relationship to God at all. And so Isaiah tells them, 
God's bringing judgment on you because you honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And when Jesus took stock of the Pharisees' attitude, he saw in them the same heart that had been in their forefathers. That even though on the outside they looked great, on the inside it was a different story altogether. He says this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy, holiness based on the externals, tends towards hypocrisy. And it's clear to see why. Because if all you use as your measuring stick of holiness is what you can see, pretty quickly you believe that that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter who I am inside. All that matters is what people think about me. And one commentator, David Garland, made this great point that I have to share with you. That we tend to think of hypocrisy as something that people set out to do. They know that they're not who they claim to be, but if they'll just put on the mask, they can get something that they want. And unfortunately, the church is full of people like that. There are pastors who appear to be sheep, but actually they're wolves, and they prey on the flock. But that's not the only kind of hypocrite that exists. There's also the hypocrite who sets out to do what's right, but over time loses focus and ends up deceiving not just others, but even themselves. So they think that really all that matters is who they are on the outside, but they've forgotten the truth. That man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart, and that's what matters most. The heart of a person is what matters. And of course, this isn't a distinctively Jewish problem. Christians were fallen foul of this same thing, even in the New Testament. Listen to what Jude says in Jude 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're clouds without water. They're carried along by winds. They're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. They're the people who put a thin veneer over an endless pit of wickedness. And thankfully, people aren't like that anymore. Now, this is a New Testament problem, and today we live in a world where everybody's totally authentic and transparent, and their lives are defined by integrity, and you show up at church, and you, you don't fake a smile. And when people ask if there's a way you, they can pray for you, you don't say, no, everything's, you know, everything's good with me. No, right, this is a perennial problem. Because we can't see the heart, we end up thinking that really all that matters is on the outside, but God says, no way. 
like the man who once boasted to me that he'd never had a sip of alcohol, but who had cheated on his wife. You know, hell will be full of people like that. People who adjust to every moment, putting on a mask to fit in here and there, going through the motions, appearing to everybody like everything is okay, but deep inside, dead. That's not holiness. Holiness based on externals that tends towards hypocrisy. That is not what God wants for you or me. God wants a holiness that is defined by sincerity. Not a holiness that mimes an obedient life because what it's going to get us in return, but one that exists because of the sincere love we have for God. Because we know that the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The one who believes what Paul said in Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's the goal of motivation of holiness, not to get something out of it, but to offer it back to God in return. The one who has given us so much deserves everything we are and have. That is true holiness from the heart. But there's another danger that a holiness based simply on the external things people can see is dangerous because it elevates tradition. It elevates tradition. That's what Jesus says next in verse 19, he was also saying to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I would have given you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. And you do many such things as that. Now, this is interesting. And I was telling Eric earlier, I could have fallen down the rabbit hole in trying to really wrap my mind around this, and maybe you want to do that this week. But in verse 5, the scribes take issue with Jesus because his disciples aren't following the traditions of the elders in regard to washing their hands. The washing that they prescribed for all of Israel had its root in the Old Testament. God required ritual washing for the priests when they went into the tabernacle. And so the Pharisees took that commandment and applied it to all the people because didn't God say that he'd called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? And so every man's home was his temple, and he needed to live his life like God was present everywhere he was, so he ought to wash his hands just as the priest did in the temple. But this whole issue of Corbin is totally strange. I mean, just on its face, we read about it on Father's Day. You know, God and his providence lined that up. And can you imagine a person today telling their father or mother, hey, I've got plenty of money, but you can't have any of it. 
You're, you're on your own in life. I can't imagine that. I know it happens, and it's a terrible tragedy when it does. But I can't imagine that religious people would build up religious justification for it. But that's apparently exactly what they did. And the rabbis who were teaching at the time uh, were passing on what they believed was a special revelation of God that wasn't written in the scriptures but had been handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai and had been handed from one generation to the next. And so they took it as truth, something that can't be violated. And in the second century, all this teaching was compiled into a book called the Talmud. There's two of them, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, and it contains all the rabbis' teachings. And there's a document in the Talmud called Nedarim, which discusses in depth the fine line between honoring a vow and honoring your parents. And this issue of something that was Corbin was specifically brought up. In fact, they talk about this instance where a man had devoted all that he had to God so that his father couldn't touch any of it, couldn't claim it as his own. But an issue came up because the man's son got married and he really wanted the son's grandfather to be able to attend the wedding, but he had vowed that all that he owned was God's and his father couldn't lay his hands on it, and so his father couldn't come to the wedding because he would eat of the man's food and enjoy his possessions. They wouldn't let him break his vow to invite his dad to his son's wedding. This isn't a theoretical problem Jesus brings up. This is what was happening day in and day out. And for Jesus, it was absolute nonsense. He says it over and over and over. He says, you set aside God's word. You invalidate God's word for the sake of your tradition. And that's what holiness based on external always does. It sets up all these additional hoops and hurdles for people to jump through and jump over. And in time, those things become key. And no matter what they might have said, that, hey, our goal is just to ensure people would obey God, and so we've erected all these additional rules to make sure nobody got too close. But always God's word is supreme and our tradition is secondary. Whatever they said, Jesus knew. For them, the tradition is what mattered most. How else could you come to the conclusion that it's more important to honor a vow than to honor your parents? That's what it means to elevate tradition and unfortunately, I think, again, we Christians are probably guilty of this. I mean, in our living memory, Baptists have had some pretty strict rules about what you can and can't do. You know, um, all kinds of jokes out there that I'm sure you can think about. You've heard, I occasionally find myself on the golf course, and I try for as long as I can to withhold the information that I'm a pastor. And so usually by about the turn, guys get a few beers in them, and they start asking me, hey, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, hey, you know, I'm a pastor. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for everything I've said. I go to church, and they tell me, you know, where they went to VBS 30 years ago, and it's great. It's classic. And I love it. But there's one of these jokes, you know, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist? 
the Methodists will say hey to you in the liquor store, but the Baptists will just walk right on by like they never saw you. And there's all kinds of things like that. You know, Baptists don't dance. They don't do mixed bathing. They don't let boys and girls swim together. You know, all sorts of things in our living memory, which were the markers of true faith. And either we have conceded biblical Christianity in the last 50 years, or we've allowed our traditions to come more in line with what the scriptures teach. Makes me think of the story about this Baptist professor who was invited to preach at his local church. And after the service, he was standing at the door, shaking people's hands, and one man took an issue with one of the points he made in his sermon. So this professor, drawing on a deep well of biblical knowledge, tries to explain to him rationally and biblically why he made that point. The man wouldn't have it, went after him again, And again, the professor, as gently as he could, pointed him to another verse in the Bible. And the man about lost his mind and said, no, you know, you can't say that. And so finally, the professor went to one last scripture, and the man cut him off. So that may be the Bible, but it ain't Baptist. And isn't that true? I mean, we know this, and we can laugh at ourselves, but we ought to think deeply about it. That a a holiness that's based on the outside tends to elevate the tradition over the scripture. But the true holiness that God desires for us is incredibly simple. In fact, one of these teachers of the law, a scribe, asked Jesus one time, what's the most important commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, you've answered correctly. You said the second one's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what he says. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, I know there are good reasons for all the rules we make for ourselves. And many of those things that we laughed about are reasonable and rational. We probably should think long and hard about some of the things we do. But there's a simplicity to holiness. It's to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the holiness God desires from us. It's the holiness that Jesus lived out perfectly and without fault. But here's the fourth and final danger of a holiness that's based on the externals. And it comes from the principle Jesus gives the crowd in verse 14. After he'd called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But it's the things which proceed out of the man that defile him. So I think the final danger of basing our idea of holiness on only what we can see is that it fundamentally misunderstands sin. The Pharisees believed that sin or impurity, wickedness, was primarily an external thing. They thought you could contract impurity. And that's one of the reasons why when they came home from the market, they had to wash themselves because you might have 
rubbed shoulders with one of these untouchable people and contracted their impurity or something. And so their traditions explained how somebody could go from removing, quite literally, the impurity that they had contracted. But Jesus says that's getting it backwards. We look down in verse 21. He says, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Sin isn't primarily the things we do. It's much deeper than that. It's this thing that's within us and infects everything about us. For the Hebrew people, the heart was the center of the person. It wasn't just like it is for us, the emotional headquarters. So I love you with all my heart. The heart was all that a person was. It involved their emotions and their desires and even their will, what they wanted more than anything else. And Jesus said all the things we can see outside of us are really just evidence of who we are on the inside. Later he'll say something like, um, what, what a man speaks comes out of the overflow of his heart. That's the real problem, not that we do bad things, or not that we make mistakes, not that we slip up. There is a deeper problem with you and me. We have a wicked heart, a heart that by nature is dead in its trespasses and sins and is totally unfeeling towards the things of God. That we hear his commandments and all we can think to ourselves is what a heavy burden that is. Why would God do this if he loves me? A heart that only wants what it wants, what's going to maximize happiness and pleasure and ease. That's the real issue. Sin begins in the heart. Now, it's true that on one level, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And so that when you and I rebel against God's authority by choosing to do things our way rather than his, we're guilty of sin and transgression. Yet there's also this thing, deep within, that infects everything about us. It infects our thoughts and our speech and our actions and our desires and our motives. And if you trace it all the way back, it's sin. And so it doesn't matter what you do, how hard you try, doesn't matter what religious motions you go through. There is nothing you or I can do to clean ourselves up. They don't make a spray bottle to disinfect the heart from sin. You can't obey your way to holiness. In fact, our obedience is worthless if our heart's not right. And so a holiness that's based on externals totally misunderstands sin. And the only way to get it right is to see what Jesus says. That true holiness begins in the heart. True holiness begins in the heart. That's where it has to begin. 
And that's a terrible problem for you and me. Because there's nothing you or I can do to change our hearts. We're totally powerless. We're in its grip. It's not in ours. The heart wants what the heart wants. And so unless somebody or something does a radical work within, doesn't matter what we do out here, we're in the same mess. Jesus specifically mentions seven vices and then six behaviors and wraps it all up with foolishness. Each one of these is representative of a thousand other things. Maybe your particular sin wasn't included in this list. You might want to check out Galatians 5. See Paul's list of the works of the flesh and his last one. He says, and things like these. You and I are stuck. We are in a mess. But think about what we've already read this morning. That when God's people get real honest and confess their sins to God and say, against you and you only I have sinned, they have the confidence and boldness to ask him not just to forgive them of their sins, but to create in me a clean heart, O oh God. It's a fulfillment of the promise of Ezekiel 36, where God said that one day he would fulfill his promises to his people and he would replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh and he would write their law on their hearts so that they wanted to obey. And that's his promise to you and me today. In fact, there are two people that I'm thinking about specifically. There's the person who before they came today didn't know why an externally defined holiness was so dangerous. And for the past five years or 10 years or 20 years, you've settled for appearances when it comes to your faith. This morning, I hope this sermon has stopped you dead in your tracks. I hope you hear the warning from God that a holiness that rests simply on who you are on the outside may make you feel better than other people. It may fool other people. It may make you a good Baptist or Methodist or Christian or Democrat or Republican or whatever. But you fundamentally misunderstood your problem. It's not about who you are on the outside. It's about who you are on the inside, where it counts, where only God can see. And I hope this morning you have, in your own heart, fessed up to the truth. That spiritually speaking, you are not what you appear to be. And if that's you, I just would challenge you to confess your sin of hypocrisy to the Lord says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I don't believe hypocrisy is the unpardonable sin. There's hope for you. And so do away with appearances and get real with God. But then there's the second person. And it's the person who is burdened by a sense of guilt and shame because you can't live up to the expectations that you feel others have placed on you. You can't be the good Christian that you feel like you have to be. 
that you got a past or you got a struggle or whatever that just obviously puts you on the outside. All these Christian people, they got it figured out. But hey, if that's you, can we just be honest together? Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think he meant you have to obey harder or obey more. In fact, when Jesus starts talking about righteousness, this is what he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled And this morning, if you're shackled by shame and guilt because you can't live up to the expectations, but in your heart, what you want more than anything else is to know that when you stand before the Lord, He is going to find you righteous and clean. And that by faith, you're trusting in Jesus to save you despite your flaws and failures and all this stuff you see in your life. And there is good news. You're right where you're supposed to be. And so believe that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That you're a new creation in Him. That He has raised you with Him and has seated you with Him in the heavenly places so that for all eternity, He can pour out His riches of grace on you in Christ. Be liberated from your burden. Will you pray with me?